0: I invite you to stand as a gesture of reverence and surrender to the reading of God's Word. We're in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 19. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may go ahead and grab a seat. We're in this series right now talking about the what, why, and how of the Bible. Uh, How we got here is how we have gotten to all of our series in the past uh, couple years where we're going through the Gospel of Mark really slowly uh, to learn about Jesus's life, his teachings, his death and resurrection. And when we come across either a core value or a controversial issue in our culture, we sit in it for a bit. And so one of our key values is about Scripture, uh, specifically the authority of Scripture for the Christian life. And so we want to take our time to sit in it because the Bible has been uh, used and abused. How we use it is confusing sometimes. It creates controversy at times in our culture. Uh, our, our culture is very saturated in the gospel and, and with the church over the past few hundred years, and so uh, we have to sit in how we read and deal with scripture. And so the point today what I want to talk about is the authority of scripture for Christian belief and practice, covering why is scripture authoritative and what we do about it. That's not a, Authority is a difficult word for our culture, which is why we have to sit in what it means for the scripture to have authority In our lives Uh, but to get there we should start by talking about the fact that most of us hear about and respond to Jesus way before we read about him so how do we get to the path of biblical authority we usually don't start there like I know for me I grew up in church maybe this describes many of your stories where before I could even read or begin to read anything I started to have a warmth towards Jesus and an affection towards Jesus mainly because the people in my life who loved me the most loved Jesus You know, I'm three, four, five, six, my earliest memories. My parents loved me well, and I knew they loved Jesus. My friends' parents, uh, I knew loved Jesus. Oftentimes coaches that I have in sports loved Jesus. My children's pastor was a good guy. I liked him, and I knew he loved Jesus. And so I was starting to develop a kind of warmth and openness towards Jesus way before I would read about him, way before I had read about him. And even if you're an adult, many times you encounter and think about Jesus before you first read about him so the path towards maybe how you see the bible starts with maybe hearing about jesus not reading about him if i fast forward in my own uh, christian journey still before i'm encountering scripture much at all uh, definitely not on my own you start to develop not just the warmth toward jesus but your sense of need for him i remember my first memories of developing somewhat of a guilty conscience. You know, I remember the first time, I can't remember if I told this story here before, I told it to people before, but I remember going to my friend's house when I was in first grade, he's got an older sister, you know, and she trained us a lot of the cuss words that I didn't know yet, and like taught us how to use the cuss words, and. What kind of gestures do what, you know, and like training us up in the way we should go as children and eventually you want to start practicing on your own and you know you kind of shouldn't, but in this territory we're fine. But then you're like, we should expand this outside of this home and take it to the neighborhood because why not? And what, what could possibly bad happen if you were to do a certain gesture? to a car driving by, and it's not, a good, it's not a good situation when you make that choice. And so I did that, and the car like swung flinging around and like chased me down, and like I couldn't pedal faster than him. But like that was when my first sense of like, guilty conscience that I might need Jesus, so when I mean, people start talking about sin and the need for forgiveness, even at age seven, eight, so I'm like, I think I need that. And so I start to want to not just have a warmth toward Jesus, but needing something from him and needing to be saved by him. But even then, I wasn't really reading the Bible much, you know. I got saved, got baptized when I was eight, and had that sense of his forgiveness of me. Uh, And then fast forward to around 13, um, when uh, I had a Bible on my nightstand. I don't know how long it had been there. I don't know if my mom put it there, or the Holy Spirit put it there. Either way, I started to have a sense, maybe this guilty conscience in me, of like, perhaps I shall read this Bible. It was like it was only guilt that made me want to do it, but it's because the people who love Jesus loved me. The Jesus that saved me and saved these people, they seem to be close to the word. Maybe I should read that. And so I started reading one page, or one chapter a night. It was the last thing I did before I went to bed. It was purely out of guilt probably. Uh, I probably didn't remember much of it at all. I definitely didn't understand much of it at all. But I read through it in four years at 13. And I don't, if you were in my high school, I don't think you would have thought that I was a particularly like, extremely faithful person. I know that because when I started to want to go into ministry, many questioned that choice. So I don't think my Bible reading was necessarily being reflected in my life. And I had a conflict starting to develop because the Bible on my nightstand that I read at night was also, I was surrounded by, as a teenager, posters of scantily clad women that I would put in my room that stared down at me while reading the scriptures for like four or five years. So, as you could imagine, the Spirit starts to convict me a little bit, and this Jesus that I had a warmth toward, that eventually I felt the need for to save me, I started to realize he might want more ground in my life. And it was kind of scripture, but really a lot of the people in my life that kind of got me there, and eventually I broke down and needed to not only receive him as Savior, but to surrender to him as Lord to say, God, whatever it is you would want in me, you may take that ground. And that was kind of started with a conversation I had with a youth pastor that I didn't know, that I called and just told him about the conflict I was experiencing. He told me to do a bunch of stuff. I immediately did that. And grace like, shot like a rocket into my life. But that is what is really the hearing about Jesus, being drawn to receive Jesus' love, and ultimately to find that he's the only authority worth surrendering to in this world the best kind of authority that will respond to your deepest need and weakest qualities with compassion and kindness and patience, who will know your brokenness way before you do. He knew it was not ideal to have the posters with the Bible, but in his own time, he waited out till eventually he brought that to light and brought me to repentance. But I found that he was worth surrendering to, but the path of now surrendering to Jesus, I then discover that this man, Jesus, was obsessed with scripture. And to surrender to Jesus' authority by way of receiving his love through the people that told me about him before I read about him that drew me eventually to find I must surrender to biblical authority. So we surrender to the authority of the Bible because we have surrendered to the authority of Jesus. Jesus is the authority. He's the only one. He is Lord. Bible is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. But then as we read Jesus, we start to find that he sees the Bible as authoritative. And so now, how do we respond to that? We're talking about Jesus and the Bible. Here's three things that Jesus says about the Bible just from this, these three verses. Matthew 5, 17. The Bible is all about Jesus. It's a story that's fulfilled in him. He says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So this is Jesus teaching on the Bible in his Sermon on the Mount. He has just begun the Sermon on the Mount with the blessings of the Beatitudes. And now he's going to start to talk about uh, Scripture and his own interpretation of it. So he says, I do not come to throw away and abolish, to eliminate, to destroy the law or the prophets. The law and the prophets is language, is vocabulary that the first century Jews would use to describe the whole Old Testament. So he's saying, now that I'm on the scene as a Jewish rabbi gaining people's trust, I'm not eliminating, doing away with, casting aside the scriptures. I've not come to do that. I've come to fulfill them. And so he's saying, the Bible is actually all about me. It's a story that ends, or that's fulfilled in me, which is exactly what we've been kind of talking about the past couple of weeks. Brennan read from that story uh, last week at the, at the uh, resurrection encounter in Luke, when Jesus uh, sneaks up, on some disciples that he, that, to show them that he rose from the dead. And he does it with a sneaky kind of disposition. Now, if, if that was me, and I rose from the dead, I'm not going to be sneaky about it. I'm going to Pilate's house. I'm going to the high priest's house, like that movie, like that show to catch a predator. I'm going to be in there, <laughs> ready to eat their food, and like, hey, why don't you go ahead and grab a seat? And to help them see that this person they killed is now risen from the dead, like, here I am. But when Jesus rose from the dead, the first thing he did was to sneak up on some people. And the first thing he did was not to show, here I am risen from the dead, is to show that all the scriptures, he says this, he started with the law and the prophets to show that all the scriptures lead to him as the Messiah. So Jesus himself sees scripture as all about him, as a unified story that's fulfilled in him. Second, Jesus believed all of the Bible is trustworthy and true. He says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So he's saying that not the smallest letter, so in Greek the smallest letter is an iota, he actually says iota, not even the smallest letter, the iota, will disappear, or the least stroke of a pen, which is like an accent mark. He's like accent marks that were used as like a pronunciation tool for their, for their Bibles at the time. He's saying not even that will go away, all of it is trustworthy and true. All of it remains important. And Jesus didn't just teach this. He lived this. So the chapter previous to this in Matthew 4 uh, is when he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And he gets tempted in three different ways. In each of the three ways, he called all the resources Jesus has. He has the angels on his side. He has his Father in Heaven on his side. He has all the power he can call. And what he sees as the trustworthy resource to fight his battle against Satan's lies is scripture. He cites it three times because he sees scripture as trustworthy and true. So if you see Jesus as trustworthy and true, you have to see scripture as trustworthy and true. You have to see them both as the same. And so he calls on scripture to defeat Satan's lies even when Satan quotes scripture to get him. So that's when we start to see the introduction of the of the reality that even when Scripture is used to distort and to abuse and to do harm, Jesus never casts Scripture aside. He sees Scripture as self-correcting, goes back to Scripture in order to prove a point, in order to prove what's, what's true and what's right. And so, so many of his arguments in the Gospels is him kind of critiquing biblical interpretation and making it go through him instead. And so, if the Bible is a unified source fulfilled in Him, it's all about Him, and He sees it as trustworthy, true the natural outcome is that Jesus believed the Bible is authoritative. Matthew 5, 19. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I think this verse applies as well in John ten thirty five, where he says scripture cannot be set aside. So this verse set aside, it's like destroyed or eliminated, like fully done away with. And so, you see then, for you to believe that Jesus is the authority, our only authority, he's the only authority you could ever want, the only authority you can ever need. But then when you start to trust him as your authority and submit to him as Lord and surrender under his kingdom, you begin to see how your authority sees scripture as authoritative. You cannot set it aside. Instead, it forms our practices and what we teach. It has, we have to come under because Jesus comes under its authority. And so this is when we start to see what it means for it to be authoritative. For us to say, I think Scripture says X. We are then now responsible to surrender to that. So if you then want to debate, maybe Scripture doesn't say that. Maybe it says this instead, so with surrender to this new interpretation. That's legit. And so we spend our whole lives as Christians learning what the Bible is doing And whatever we conclude at that time, we're responsible to trust it. That's different from saying, I disagree with the Bible. I dislike what it has to say. Come on, it's 2023. Do we really have to? Like that is the kind of thing that Jesus would critique. That would be setting aside. I know it teaches X and I'm gonna set it aside. That would be in conflict with Jesus as our authority. You see the difference there? It's once you decide as best as we can what scripture teaches, we are now responsible to surrender to that. So Jesus believed it is one unified story about him. It's so trustworthy and true, you can't throw any of it away. And it's authoritative. He won't set it aside. You cannot do away with it. Now, if you have read the Bible a little bit, if you've attempted your Bible in your plan, you may come across this passage and wonder, well, hang on a second. Something don't add up. Did Jesus not set this aside? Check this out. He says, every animal that does not have a divided hoof or that does not chew the cud Is unclean for you. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them will be unclean. Of all the animals that walk on all fours, those that walk on their paws are unclean for you. Whoever touches their carcasses will be unclean till evening. Anyone who picks up their carcasses must wash their clothes and they will be unclean till evening. These animals are unclean for you. Now, this is what I'm talking about some good devotional reading. It's usually ideal around mid February when it's cold and dark and you barely were able to get out of bed to drink the coffee and then you discover that you're reading for today is in Leviticus 11. Premier inspiration here. We need to cross-stitch this on a pillow, put it on a magnet for us. But Jesus says you can't set aside any scripture, not even one least stroke of a pen. This is scripture. It is the law. And then Jesus says this. In Mark 7, we've read this passage. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it, does not, for it doesn't go into their uh, heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now hang on now. Something is not adding up, man. This is what you see if we have barely read Scripture at all, this is an easy way to reject it. I've heard like even random like radio hosts talking like, yeah, we don't do this stuff. They talk about not eating bacon and we don't eat shrimp. and We, don't, we ignore that, so therefore we can ignore the rest of it. So what's going on here? How do we deal with this? The key is recognizing that first point. It's a unified story that is fulfilled in Jesus. So when you see a story that is moving towards something, there are times when the earlier parts of the story are important for understanding where the story went to without applying in the same way. So if I get in my car now and I start driving south towards Louisville, I will see signs on the way to Louisville that tell me how far Louisville is away. And once I get inside of Louisville, it will stop. Te- I won't have any more signs. The signs were used to get me towards a destination. And I see a lot of the Old Testament, all of it is important to describe the story that is progressing toward the cross. So it's teaching something about the fact that the uh, people of Israel, having been enslaved for 450 years, had a distorted view of God, of themselves, of their role as God's people, and God wanted a brand new break, a clean break a fully casting away of what came before them and new rules that would set them apart. And he wanted every part of their life to be so set apart, and much of it was morally set apart, which we see in these following verses, but set apart even in what they ate and what they wore. He wanted a complete difference for a time. In order to go towards the cross, where that point of the story will be fulfilled. So when we now say, well, we don't follow those crazy food laws, it's not because you know it's 2023 and now we have wised up to discover that they are dumb. It's because we are now living in a progressed part of the story that Jesus has fulfilled and we have real verses right here at Mark 7 that Jesus is interpreting the point of that piece of the story leading up to him to say, It was meaningful to get us here, but it no longer applies in the same way. Now, you can't just do that about whatever you want. Look at it right here. What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is within, out of a person's heart. The evil thoughts come. First one, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile the person. Now, he's talking to Jewish people. Where would they have learned about any of this stuff? The same Old Testament that is filled with teaching on sex and violence and how do you deal with people's stuff and how we talk to each other and what we think about each other, how we speak, how we think about ourselves. The Old Testament's filled with wisdom on that and challenges with how the people respond to it. And so he himself is saying, those pieces of the story remain. And if anything, they get intensified. It's more serious than before. Whereas the story, the parts that separated them ethnically for a time on the way to Jesus no longer apply in the same way. What's interesting is in Mark 7, the very next chapter, is when Jesus encounters a Gentile woman and, to a, and affirms her faith. Remember that story? The Sour Phoenician woman? So don't you see that Jesus is saying, the time when the Jewish people must be ethnically set apart is coming to an end of fulfillment in Jesus. And, but And I'll show you because now we are opening this up to even the Gentile woman who would be normally cast aside as not a model of faith at all, she will become the hero of faith in the story. So you see, when you read Jesus, when you read the rest of the Bible, you start to see how he interprets the story through him and what he's doing. We don't just eliminate it because on a whim, we're better than this now. We're beyond temples and sacrifices and food laws. It's because the New Testament was fulfilled, and now we keep reading. So it's through Scripture that we learn how to understand the rest of Scripture. How y'all doing, man? Y'all doing laws, Leviticus, and didn't put you to sleep yet. Praise God. Let's do it. Alright. Um, so, Jesus said all this stuff about the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't even written. So what do we do about that? How do we then see the New Testament in the right light? Did Jesus really want, was this, did he see that as authoritative? Does Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that was written after Jesus was died and crucified and resurrected, is that all authoritative as well? And so think about Authority in your own context, in our own culture. If people have authority, how do they give out their authority now? How do they live out their authority now? They often speak their authority, right? Through speaking, through writing, and often they mediate it through people below them. So, like the president has people working underneath him, underneath him, underneath him, underneath him, and there's lots of delegation where they carry the authority of the one above them. I see that's how Jesus does too. It's not just Jesus is the only authority and he goes to each person he mediates his authority through human beings just as we do if you're the heaven organization you can't be the one in every room you mediate and delegate that authority and I see Jesus mediating his authority through the disciples who wrote scripture so he says this Matthew 28 then Jesus came to them and said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Jesus is the authority not the scriptures he is Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So you think, who's standing there? He's got 11 guys standing there with him. Matthew, the former tax collector, is standing there. He's now being told. He's getting authority handed to him from Jesus. He now eventually is a church leader and now eventually writes this gospel. He carries Jesus' authority as he writes the scripture. Who else is standing there? Peter. We know from the rest of the New Testament that Peter was a very close associate to Mark. In Acts, they are close associates. Most believe that Peter basically told Mark what to write, and he wrote the gospel of Mark. John, also standing right there, one of Jesus' main disciples, he reclines on him during the Lord's Supper. He wrote Gospel of John. And so it's because in Acts, they're told they will be witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So because the teachings of Christianity are rooted in a real life event with a real historical person, with real things happening in real time and space, like that's the foundation of the message, it hinges on the witnesses who were there. It's like in a courtroom, the witnesses called to the stand are people who physically were a part of seeing and hearing and knowing what happened. And their word carries weight. That's why when I'm up here standing here reading, if I got up here and read from C.S. Lewis or N.T. Wright or St. Augustine or Luther or Calvin and taught from that, you would be like, what's he doing? Even people that have some trouble with the Bible would be like, why is he not reading scripture? It's because we know that scripture's rooted in the witnesses who were there. They saw what happened, they wrote it, and anything we would ever imagine about Jesus has to go through them. They're like, we saw him, we were with him. You can't make up what you want to say about Jesus. We were there. So you either have their word or no word. I'm trying to try to show you how we cannot have a gap between our trust in Jesus and our trust in scripture. That's the point here. And that I see because of people that look like me and are doing what I'm doing who have done so much harm and abused their power people then imagine that that is associated with the scripture itself but we want Jesus and now let's cast aside scripture since it's been abused but I'm trying to show you from scripture that it's pretty incoherent that if we trust Jesus we realize that scripture has to come with it and we have to deal with the kind of conflict that that might bring but what about Paul? Like, he wasn't a witness. He wasn't there. People that don't like the Bible start because they don't like Paul. I remember one time preaching a sermon at my last church about from Paul. I thought it was like it was all from Scripture, a thousand million highlights, like I always do. And someone was so mad about it, and then they would left. I'm like, what did I do? And eventually, from like a three hour conversation, they just should have admitted listen, what you did was according to Paul, it was right. I just don't like Paul, and I'm out. And like, literally, that was it. (laughs) That dude used to be a pastor, and now he's not a Christian because he came to the conclusion, I don't like Paul, and if I don't like Paul, I can't be a Christian because Paul was a person that Jesus found to be authoritative. So what do we do about Paul? So in the book of Acts, there's three different times when they tell the story of how Paul became a Christian, right? That's a big deal to use that much space, like with us, if you're writing an email, you just copy and paste the same story, right? If you write a story, you're like, "Oh, we're gonna do that story again." Copy paste. No need to write that again. But to do in, in the New Testament times, where like it's so hard to get even the material to write, most people think it would have cost like five to ten thousand dollars to produce something like First Corinthians. It's a big deal to like use up space because they were trying to show that Paul had a unique authority as a uniquely commissioned uh, pastor for Jesus, a uniquely commissioned apostle that. The resurrected Jesus encountered Paul numerous occasions and empowered him for this special role to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And the early Christian church saw it that way. Check this out from Peter. Peter says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul so wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Some of you are like, Peter, sees me. (laughs) Like, I feel seen now. Do they have things that are hard to understand? But he says, which ignorant and unstable people distort, don't be triggered by that, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So first of all, Peter, who was seen as an authoritative authoritative person in the church, he preached the first sermon that led 3,000 people to get baptized. Jesus says, on this rock I'll build my church. Like, Peter is, like, number one. And he sees Peter. Paul's letters as equivalent with the other scriptures. So Peter sees Paul as authoritative, and Jesus authorizes Peter, and Jesus authorizes Paul, and if we had a diagram, I bet it'd work out just right, that you see that Jesus has empowered these people, but then Peter starts to show where the real problem lies. The problem isn't with scriptures, it's with us. That we have potential to be ignorant and unstable that we have potential to distort reality, that we have potential to contribute to our own destruction and the destruction of others. Like the problem is with us, not with scripture. But if we rewind to the start of my story and the start of the sermon, you will recall that me describing my entry point into Jesus' life, right? That I came to grips at a young age with the guilty conscience of my weakness and my need for Jesus. If we enter into the family with that sense need of our brokenness and need for mercy and forgiveness, we should not then be surprised when, a month, years, decades into this relationship, we are reminded once again that we have potential to do harm to even good news. And so the problem is never with the scriptures or with Leviticus or with the Gospels, or with Paul, or with the commands. The problem is with humanity. But praise God that Jesus solved that problem. He's forgiven our sin, and yet we still carry it. And so the cure is to keep reading. We never stop reading the Scriptures because the Scriptures themselves are self-correcting. We surrender to the authority of a stable document that God was behind, that God oversaw, and we come to learn to trust in it because Jesus trusted in it, and we let it over and over again become a mirror that is held up to our capacity and, and a regularity of being ignorant and unstable and distorting towards our destruction. That will be there if we don't trust and let the scriptures be a mirror that transcends us that can, uh, that can speak into our lives from a word beyond us. So let's put it all together. If you ask the question to a Christian, how do we determine what we believe and what we practice, it has to be through the scriptures. There's a theologian named John Wesley. People call this the Wesley quadrilateral. Normally, sometimes it's not packaged like this, but it would say that there are four ways people come to grips with what is true. With scripture, with reason, with tradition, and with experience. Now, Wesley himself never use the word quadrilateral, because that would make it look like each has its own like even. Instead, he would say, Scripture is over everything, and he would say, this is what all the church tradition has believed, but that we then uh, kind of develop and interpret how we think about Scripture through starting with tradition, to say, hey man, we only have what we have today in our faith because of other faithful Christians who came before us. They've face the same questions. Like, the questions you're asking about Scripture now, I assure you, you're not the first person to ask about them. Like, you are in a long line of people that have had similar wrestlings. You're not the first person to discover that Leviticus tells us we can't eat bacon and look at us now. Like, I promise you, other Christians have dealt with this. You're not the first person to be discouraged by and overwhelmed by Old Testament violence. The church has known this for a long time. We can all find it there. So we go to tradition to say, how has the church wrestled with this before? But then we use reason, to be like, hey man, maybe they missed some stuff, maybe we have some new information. So we're constantly kind of rounding out how the church has read about it, put it in different language, you never put periods on our theological senses, we're always wrestling with it. And then we bring all that to bear on our experience. And we filter it through our experience. Now the problem in our culture, but it's so individualistic, is it kind of reverse that order. We say, my experience is king, I start there. What feels and looks true to me from my experience and my vantage point is the realest thing available. And now, through this experience, it's the realest thing, the most trustworthy thing. I can't trust the things outside of me. I can't trust the things that came before me. I can't trust my parents. I can't trust the church. I can't trust the church tradition, for sure. So then we bring that experience to tradition and the people that pass down tradition through our reason to critique it. So like, okay, I'm going to use my logic plus my experience, and I'm going to critique tradition. And now I'm going to go through all that to maybe cut holes in and eliminate and tear down and put space between us and Scripture. And I would say we should go the other way. Always come back to Scripture. Let it be the thing that critiques all the above. There are holes and gaps in our reasoning. There are problems with tradition. Our experience is a mixed bag. Sometimes our experience is really good and truthful. Sometimes it's not, but it's It's a good uh, indicator light. But let Scripture be the first and final authority. That's the call as a Christian because we surrender to Jesus. And the good thing is we never stop reading it and oftentimes it will self-correct and according to the things that we are already sensing from our life with the Spirit. I wanna end with this quote here from the book Unbreakable by Andrew Wilson. It's the book that I recommended before a few weeks ago. It says, ultimately you see, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust in the Bible, I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. That's a whole word. That could have been a sermon right there. And so our call as Christians is to go through Jesus. It's through him. He's been the kindest, best authority we could ever imagine. You would never want another one. He has seen you in your weakness. He has seen you in your brokenness. He has loved you in your wounds. He has loved you in your sins. He knows sins that you will do that are coming in the future, and he's already forgiven you for them. He has already torn down the walls that would stand between you and him, and to make room for his spirit to flood into your life to say, He wants nothing more than to be with you permanently. And he has come 100% of the way to eliminate anything that could stand in the way of you and him permanently. And he's done that for the rest of these people in this room and the Christians that have came before you as well. And it's through coming to grips with the softened heart of the overwhelming love of Jesus that we now see that the one who loved us so deeply loves this scripture. Because it's through him and it's about him. And it came by way to us through his power and his authority. And so why wouldn't we want to let it soften our hearts and break our hearts at times? Why wouldn't we say, I don't know why you have this weird story about Ezekiel in there, but I know I like you, so I'll stick with you, and maybe over time you'll tell me why Ezekiel had to cook food over human excrement. That's kind of a weird story. But, like, I trust Jesus, and so I will give Jesus the benefit of the doubt, and over time I might learn stuff, and other times I might not. And I will give Jesus the benefit of the doubt, even if... Many people think I'm crazy for it because he has grounded us and made us whole despite our brokenness and our propensity for destruction. And that will be enough to sustain us to commit to the scriptures together. Let's pray.